Okay, Mark 9, 38 through 50. John spoke up, teacher, we saw a man using your name to expel demons and we stopped him because he wasn't in our group. Jesus wasn't pleased. Don't stop him. No one can use my name to do something good and powerful and in the next breath, cut me down. If he's not an enemy, he's an ally. Why anyone just by giving you a cup of water in my name is on our side, count on it that God will notice. On the other hand, if you give one of these simple childlike believers a hard time, bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, you'll soon wish you hadn't. You'd be better off dropped in the middle of a lake with a millstone around your neck. If your hand or your foot gets in God's way, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lame and, the, and alive than the proud owner of two hands and two feet, godless in a furnace of eternal fire. And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 20-20 vision from inside the fire of hell. Everyone's going through a refining fire sooner or later, but you'll be well-preserved, protected from the eternal flames. Be preservatives yourselves. Preserve the peace. All right. Thank you, Lauren. So there's a lot of stuff happening in this text, and I want to walk you through it a little bit and have a conversation with you and see what you think. I do want to say up front, in case I forget later, Praxis is going to be different this week. I'm adding a Wednesday night feature. So 12 o'clock and 7 o'clock right here in the sanctuary, I'm featuring, it's actually a webcast of a scholar on the subject of hell. So if you've ever wanted to go deep, drink from a fire hose, this is the one. She just published her latest book through uh, Yale Publishing, uh, which is no small feat. It's a very, very thick book. She condenses about six weeks of academics into 90 minutes. So if you want to know everything you possibly could, never knew you wanted to know about this subject, uh, come uh, come to that 7 o'clock or 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock, depending on what kind of score we get for the food pantry. Sometimes we get stuff that is just about to expire sandwiches and stuff that we can't churn out, and sometimes we can have lunch on that. So if we do, we'll eat that. Doesn't that sound delicious? Almost bad food <laughs> that we can't get out. Uh, if not, we'll figure out the, some Costco salads or something from yours truly. And that evening, 7 o'clock for you, I'm going to really open up my hospitality gifts I might bring some water uh, for you. So anyway, <laughs> so 12 o'clock, 7 o'clock, it lasts about 90 minutes for the webinar. So it's longer than normal. Um, she is academic, uh, but she's extremely accessible, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So uh, come check that out. All right. Oh, her name? Her name is Megan Henning. Uh, that's her name. And I I referenced this in my blog, which will release at 12 o'clock today, and it has a link uh, on her name, which will take you to Amazon to, to buy her big fat books. Uh, but they are, because they're so academic, they're not at all cheap. So you may not want to do that. I do reference a couple other books in there as well. One is uh, a very popular book called Love Wins by Rob Bell. And another one um, written by a guy, uh, I'm still looking on his name right now, but he wrote a book called Eliminating Satan and Hell from the Church. And I had him speak here about 10 years ago. And it's one of the best, shortest uh, works on the sub both of these subjects uh, that I've come across. Uh, if you're looking for just footnotes and academic stuff, it's really good in my blog. Okay, so what do we see here? Uh, we see the disciple John talking 
And he's complaining. He says, teacher, we saw a man using your name to expel demons, and, and we stopped him because he wasn't in our group. He's basically saying, you know what, we're the, we're the ones, we're, we're in the club, and we saw this other person doing God's stuff, and apparently it was working. And they were asking Jesus, I think probably for permission to keep going around as ministry police, uh, deciding who gets to do ministry and who does not. Now, I'm speaking to you as one of a very specialized class because I am ordained uh, by a large denomination, which requires a process to go through. And so I am one of a class of people that actually has committed a lot of fouls on determining who and who cannot do certain forms of ministry. Now, luckily, our particular tradition, which is American Baptist, which is a very broad, uh, very friendly uh, form of Baptist theology, um, we're pretty open on who gets to do things. But other traditions are very, very restrictive on who gets to do what. Uh, we had um, a person with us for a while from the Presbyterian uh, circles as she was seeking ordination, and she made it clear to me that even if I offered her this possibility, she could not ever serve communion because that was restricted only for the ordained uh, people within the presbytery. Very interesting stuff. So John is asking, why do who should get to be the ones to do this? Who, who has the authority to do this? And I'm just wondering, what was his deal? I mean, isn't it more the merrier? Why, why did John have an issue with this? Why did he care? Why did any of the disciples care that other people were doing good things of God, seeing, seeing healing happen and all this? Anybody have an idea? Why would John give a rip if, uh, if somebody else was doing God stuff? Anybody? Doubt. Doubt? Okay. Doubt about... Okay, just maybe wondered about their character, perhaps. Should they, should they be able to do this kind of thing? Okay. Okay, are they worthy to do this kind of stuff? Oh, yeah, that's good. Jealousy. Yeah, right. Why is, why is that guy able to do it? What else? Power, right. Power control. We want to be the authorities uh, to do this stuff. Envy? Yeah, maybe John was having an off day. He only cast out two demons, and that guy did five, right? Who knows? Uh, it's a competitive thing. Yeah, right. What is it? Prejudice. Oh, yeah, right. We don't know much about this person, but maybe they weren't of the same um, theological persuasion. Maybe their skin tone was a different. Uh, maybe they're from a different social class, maybe a different ethnicity. Uh, who knows uh, all that was going on? We, we certainly know that that was an issue uh, later in the church. You know, this issue, I think all of you are right, by the way. I think it's a myriad of things that go into this. Uh, I think this is still alive and well today, by the way. And I think I still struggle with it personally. Uh, I, I'm in a tradition uh, that uh, has deep historical roots in our country, the Baptist tradition. And one of the things that Baptists were really uh, keyed in on in the 1800s is uh, as a grassroots movement, we wanted to be people of the, of the Word, of the Bible, and understanding that in a very particular way. And we felt like in those early days that things were really uh, 
really getting diluted. And so we wanted to bring it back to the fundamentals. And so those fundamentals were literally uh, come together in the late 1800s, which helped create a fundamentalist view of Christianity. And <laughs> one part of that whole thing is, if you don't see it our way, you're probably not even a Christian. Yeah. And actually, they kind of dropped the probably uh, right out of it. And Baptists were the strongest group of those folks who, who loved that and had great power in it. And let me tell you, um, there was great fear that was levied toward other people, other denominations, Catholicism, uh, especially other religious traditions that flat out said, we are the ones who are right, you are clearly wrong, and you'd better turn it around or else. That was kind of the flavor of the day. So our own tribe and our background, we're rooted uh, in that stuff. And yet Jesus seems to be saying something else. And by the way, it happened in other ways too, right? Uh, within Catholicism, even to this day, as it does in Protestantism in many forms, uh, there is still this, this uh, ethos of we're the ones who are the true church. We're the ones with the right beliefs, and you are not. And therefore, you need to come around. I have a, a dear friend who's Catholic, uh, and I know that that's part of his orientation, is this is the one true Catholic church. And he's never going to leave it, even though there's part of him that kind of wants to <laughs> because of different things. And I got to tell you that uh, me personally, um, I, have, I have been on, well, I'm struggling with this. There have been times in my life when I have been that ministry police uh, where I've looked at where I was and what I believed. And as I sorted things out, I figured out uh, who had the right beliefs and who had less than right beliefs. And an amazing uh, thing dawned on me over time. I was always in the right beliefs camp. Can you believe it? <laughs> it's almost like that's a human nature thing, right? We look at those people who agree with us, and of course we're right, and anybody who disagrees with us must surely be wrong. And of course, this isn't in a uh, just a religious framework either, is it? I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a political climate in the United States. And apparently, I've heard rumors that uh, in our political climate in the United States, it is somewhat binary, where if you're a part of one political party, you are absolutely sure the other party is absolutely wrong, and your candidate is right, and that one's a complete loser, right? That's sort of how we do our advertising. That's how we, that's how we do the whole machine. Uh, it's caused serious, serious problems in our country. It's torn families apart. Uh, because of that binary thinking of I'm right, and therefore, if you don't agree with me, you must be wrong. But do you recognize, and, and by the way, I've been on the, not only have I been on the giving end of this, letting other people know just how wrong they are <laughs> and how right I am, I've been on the receiving end of this. And, been, and you know that, because that's part of my story, that's part of our story here, that I have, I have felt the brunt of the larger body saying, you are not, you are basically, see, it's even hard to say, a heretic, you are apostate, you are wrong, and you are no longer with us. So I know what that feels like uh, to a degree. And part of me uh, wants to just fight back and just say, oh yeah, well, let me tell you all the reasons why you're wrong, you know, and just get into this whole thing. And 
as I read Jesus, and I know this, I know that this is a part of human being and growth and all that stuff, but I'm hearing Jesus say, you know what? <laughs> you need to broaden your perspective here. And I know that's true. I know it's right, but it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts when I know that there are, there are other organizations, other faith groups even, that I know that some of the beliefs that they hold are literally punishing to half of the people in the population based on gender. I know that there are, there are tribes within the United States that if you're gay, you are going to hell, and that's exactly what they communicate as loud as they possibly can. And I know that there are other tribes that do other things that are equally as horrific toward other people groups around the globe. And what I hear Jesus saying here is, you know what? You may have a hard time believing this, but I'm working everywhere. I'm working everywhere. And even in that church, Pete, that you think is so bad, somehow, some way, I'm doing something there too. Doesn't mean I agree with everything that's there, but I'm, I'm still at work. And so why don't you get off your high horse <laughs> and start just celebrating the fact that God is so much bigger than your puny imagination. And Pete, by the way, I'm not only just working in the Christian tradition, I'm working everywhere in the world. And I'm not just working with religious traditions, because if I was stuck working only with religious traditions, how many people would be uh, excused from the good news of my grace? So if we really believe that God is really at work everywhere all the time, it doesn't mean that we don't take religion seriously, or we, we as a Christian church don't take Jesus seriously, but it means that we are more graceful and at least able to almost take a deep breath. And we don't need to be like John here in this story. Even if we're wounded, even if we see things we hate, it doesn't also mean that we don't say things about, hey, what about this? And let's talk about this because that's damaging. We still can do that with an element of grace and respect, which is hard to come by today. And I confess to you that I struggle to do that well. Uh, but I'm working on it um, because I know that God is working way beyond uh, whatever puny version of truth I think I may have. So that's an encouragement. So uh, that helps us a little bit. We may not like it. It doesn't mean we, like I said, doesn't mean we endorse everything that we see in some of those institutions, but we can have confidence that if God truly is everywhere and at work in everything, then that means really that God is at work everywhere and in everything. And so hope in that, pray for that. And then this next little chunk, by the way, um, you may not know you have this. If you've been around Crosswalk, you know you do because I've shared it with you and pointed it out to you, but you have a hermeneutic and it is showing <laughs> all the time. Your hermeneutic is simply how you go and understand an ancient text in its context and how you carry forward its principles into our present day context. That's called the hermeneutical process. And all of us do this, even if you don't know that you're doing it, you have a way of looking at a biblical text like we're looking at today and just deciding how to do it. Now you need to know a little bit about my hermeneutic. And since I'm the primary big mouth around here, then this is sort of the one that prevails around crosswalk. That is that there are some tenets of our Baptist tradition, which I just flat out uh, have a hard time with and disagree with. Uh, there's a thing called verbal plenary inspiration, which essentially means that God wrote the Bible. I don't believe that. 
And that verbal plenary inspiration uh, leads uh, some of our ancestry to say that therefore the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Uh, I don't agree with that. And the reason why is that I don't think that's how the ancient rabbis looked at sacred text. They certainly believed that what they were talking about and what they had formed uh, was sacred in the sense that it was a story about God and that they were certainly wanting to tell their story about God so other people would know this God and embrace this God. That's what made it sacred, but it wasn't that God controlled the quill. In fact, I think that they understood it, as I understand their perspective, is that they did the best they could to craft their, their remembrances and their poetry, their history, as best as they could. But like all of us, their context shows up. Their biases show up. Their culture shows up. It's all there. The fingerprints of the past are all over the Bible, and that's wonderful. Because God is working through real people at real points in time. But that also means that we got to take their context and what shaped them and their understanding into consideration when we think about what to apply forward. So some scientific things like, like the creation of the world and all that. There are some in our ancestry that want to, want to uh, advocate for a literal six-day creation, well, I could be wrong, and uh, that maybe it did happen that way, but I, I don't think so because of our understanding and our hermeneutic of the context of that day and what they were trying to communicate with the creation poem in Genesis 1 and the story in Genesis 2 and 3. So we look at that, we try to hear what they're saying, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we apply everything that they may have believed at that time to our present day. That's delicate work. It's important work. It's challenging work. It's holy work. And we see a little bit of that here with this word hell. I want to tell you up front uh, that Jesus is not giving a treatise on hell at this point, but it shows up so many times in this text that we can't ignore it. Uh, I'll tell you what Jesus is really getting at, and then we'll talk about hell, and then I'll come back and remind you what Jesus is really talking about, okay? Um, so what Jesus is really talking about is live ethically. He's saying live morally, live responsibly, live in shalom, toward shalom, live by the Spirit of God, because that's what leads to life. And when you digress from that way of shalom, that way of God, the, the flow of the Spirit and life, which gives life, which is uh, the origin of creation, which guides us in so many ways, the more we step away from that, the more we experience life at its best or what it can be. So it's a different orientation to living altogether. We can get to such a point of not walking in the way of shalom that it almost feels like a living death. And some people really feel that. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you have felt that. Or there have been times in your life where you made decisions which you wish you could take back. That in the heart of it, when you felt the full brunt of the consequences of the decisions that you make, were, which were a departure from the way of shalom, you kind of wanted to die because it was that bad. That's really what Jesus is talking about here. But we have to talk about hell because it shows up. And anytime we hear the word hell, things happen to us. This is a triggering word because it is such a loaded word uh, in our religious history in America. It has been used as a primary uh, uh, motive uh, to get people to run into the arms of Jesus uh, because you better or else and instead of being wooed into the love of God and what God is trying to do into the world, we feel more like we're, we're being 
forced to, to make a decision or we're going to suffer forever. And so just a very, very short thing. And again, if you want to understand a, a much broader cultural understanding and context, come Wednesday, because she really unpacks this uh, very, very well. But in short, uh, a few hundred years before Jesus was born, nobody talked about afterlife at all. You died and you went to the place of the dead. It's called Sheol. And that's about as much as they thought about it. They didn't really think much about any kind of afterlife experience. But then in the 300 years between um, the last written part of the Old Testament, what we call the New Testament or Jesus' birth, they started to think a lot about afterlife, partly because other cultures were thinking about afterlife. And those cultures were impacting and affecting the Jewish understanding of things. And another thing was happening. Uh, the Jewish people had lost their nation. Uh, it wasn't their home anymore. And they kept crying out to God. They kept trying to ratchet up their righteousness to get God to act and do it again, God, kind of a thing. And God wasn't acting. And generation after generation after generation after generation, God was silent. And so then they began to wonder, well, maybe, maybe God's not going to bring justice in our time or in this life. Maybe God is going to bring justice in the next life. And so that's when the ideas about an afterlife began to emerge in Jewish thought, which is important contextual analysis to appreciate. This wasn't there all the time, but this developed for a reason or reasons in this case. And when they did, some of the Jewish thought by the time Jesus was born was pretty elaborate. Uh, so they uh, had the idea that um, when you died, you were sort of put into a holding place. And if you were a fairly good person, depending how good you were, you were in one of two good chambers. If you were really, really, really good, then you'd be like Carrie Nuccio or something. You'd be, you know, like uh, at the Ritz, you know. And if you were just kind of okay, like John Anderson, of course, uh, you wouldn't be at the Ritz, but you'd be more like at a Holiday Inn Express. You know, it's comfortable, it's clean, decent breakfast, the cinnamon buns are pretty darn good. Uh, but if you weren't good at all, and I won't name any names, Ben Newman, but if you weren't very good, uh, you might be more like naked and afraid, you know, but in a suburb where you could go get Starbucks from somebody. And if you're really, really bad... Uh, I don't know who this could be like. Uh, who do I want to pick on, Stephen Corley? But if you're really, really bad, <laughs> then you're naked and afraid, you know, in a mosquito-ridden rainforest somewhere where you're going to be tortured day and night and dysentery and all of this mess, right? That's sort of the look. And I, I am not saying anything about these people I've mentioned. So, all right. So that was kind of the idea and sort of its breadth. And one of the words that showed up that we see here that is translated hell actually has a historical uh, footnote attached to it. Because any, almost all the time where you see an English word hell in your Bible, you're going to see an asterisk and it's going to take you to the footnote and it's going to say most of the time Gehenna. Sometimes it's going to say Ben-Hinnom, which is the Hebrew word for that, depending on what kind of Bible you're using. And that, that word Gehenna, which is the Greek translation of Ben-Hinnom, refers to a valley outside of Jerusalem. That has a, a very historical significance. There was a time in Jewish history when they were getting away from Shalom. Uh, their theology was heavily diluted, and they were welcoming all sorts of religious practices, some of which were horrific, absolutely horrific. They involved um, prostrating women, children, and sometimes 
human sacrifice, including child sacrifice. One of the areas where they worshiped uh, was in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. By the time Josiah came along, who was one of the great kings of Israel, and he found out what the covenant was saying, and he actually found the book of Deuteronomy is what he probably found, and he's reading about uh, what should be happening. It's like it had been lost, and now he finds out what God actually wanted them to do to, to be God's people and to be, um, you know, just for God. You'll have no other gods before me, the Ten Commandments, all that stuff. He went to town cleaning house, and where he saw these egregious expressions of worship, which were so apart from the shalom of God, he wiped them out. So he went into that place where they were worshiping in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he just slaughtered all the prophets who were there. He burned the altar to the ground. And when he did that, that made that ground literally desolate and desecrated. And anybody who referred to that space would know that is desecrated land. That's a place that is devoid of God and life. And it is cursed so when Jesus then is talking about ethical living, he's saying, live your life right. Otherwise, it's going to be like you're thrown into this place of desecration, this place of, of utter despair, um, where you don't want your family to find you, because it would be horribly embarrassing that you somehow were there. It would sort of say something about your whole family name. People would be talking. But what Jesus was maybe not talking about was this eternal kind of punishment thing. Now, I say that lightly um, because this is part where hermeneutic gets a little complicated. There's another part, by the way, I just got to uh, retract an error I didn't know I was making for many years because I've, I've taught on this many times. Uh, but there were some scholars uh, for a long time, even some prominent voices as late as two weeks ago <laughs> when I read uh, an email from them, um, that had the idea, and this is something I've taught, is that in Jesus' time, this place, Ben-Hinnom, became uh, Jerusalem's garbage dump, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, dogs, you know, vying over trash, and weeping because uh, poor people would be buried along with the trash, and their family members would be weeping, and this kind of perfect view of hell, burning all the time, and all that perfect uh, way to think about uh, how we think about hell as an eternal punishing kind of a, a place. And so um, I found out recently from Megan Henning and her research that that idea of the trash dump actually showed up uh, from a rabbi in the Middle Ages. At that time, there was a trash dump outside of Jerusalem uh, in that valley. And so therefore, the rabbi said, well, that's just probably what they're talking about. And we just assumed, and he probably thought it was always there, because why wouldn't he think it was always there? But recent archaeological uh, work has evidence that at Jesus' time, there was no such trash dump uh, in that space. And so that's kind of late breaking news, you know, from antiquity. And it kind of matters on this, because if it was just a trash dump, that makes it a lot easier to excuse Jesus. And just say, oh, he, was just, he wasn't talking about some eternal punishment place. He was talking about the trash dump, and that just makes it much more convenient. It's terribly inconvenient that that's kind of off the table, even though the same basic tenet is true from what happened to desecrate that land uh, many, many centuries before. 
The, real, uh, the reality is, and this is again my hermeneutic and my theology showing, and you don't have to agree with this, um, the crosswalk is a place where we can have questions and differences of opinion, uh, and we celebrate that. But I really, really believe uh, in the humanity of Jesus. I really believe he lived in the first century. I really believe that he was infused with the Spirit of God in ways that uh, I don't know have been, been reached since. And that's why we're looking at him and reading him. This is, un- this is incarnation, okay? But in our tradition, in our theological dr- tradition, we tend to, I think, overemphasize the God part so much that the humanity part is almost uh, benign. And I don't think that's fair to Jesus. And I don't think it's good for us. So what I'm suggesting is, and I don't know, I know that when Jesus uh, was doing his thing in the first century, apocalyptic fever was higher than it had perhaps ever been. And people were wanting to see God do something right now, which is why you hear urgency in the entire New Testament. Paul is certain that end of next week, uh, right when the giants win the division, uh, that's when Jesus is coming back and it's all going to be over with, right? That's how, that's how they thought back then. And that was all born out of their context. But what if Jesus, his understanding of his world and the cosmology was also born out of that context? What if his idea of even hell and that kind of thing was also formed more by his cultural context and his time in history than from some enlightened position of God? Is it possible that we see both at play in the person of Jesus? I think so. And I think that's very good news because it helps us understand why, like I showed you a month or two ago, why Jesus can make a racial slur and be called on it and correct it. It's why there are some things that Jesus says that we can say, man, he is definitely speaking into his time here. But I'm not sure what he's saying is as much from the heart of God as from the heart of the first century. I think that's okay. And I think it's good scholarship to try to understand which is which very, very carefully. And the reason I say I think that's important is because you and I, (laughs) if we really believe that God is everywhere and in everyone, everything, then we also share that capacity for incarnation. We are a mixed bag. We have this capacity uh, to be sensitive to the Spirit and speak things of the Spirit of God, which are shalom towards shalom. And yet our eyes are fashioned by the time in which we live. And sometimes that acts as a filter and doesn't allow much of the Spirit of God to go through at times. And the reason why I think that's actually hopeful is I got to ask the question, why in the world would we want this hell thing anyway? What is it about us that want it? And there are probably some of the same things that we talked about before that have to do with authority and power and being right but there may be some darker things there too. I was having a conversation a few months ago with a colleague of mine, and he called um, end times thinking with, with, among Christians, he called it Christian's apocalyptic fantasy. Christian apocalyptic fantasy. 
And the reason he called it fantasy wasn't because he was uh, correcting the veracity of their statement or not, but it's because in his experience, and I would say I agree in certain circles, that when he heard people talk about the second coming of Christ, when God ends it all, one of the things that brought them great joy is those bad people were going to get theirs. God was going to come kick butt, and they were going to be on the good side. I just wonder, is that, is that the tone of the same Jesus who says, hey, if they're doing stuff that's clearly of the Spirit, they're in the same Spirit. And if Jesus is one who we saw who was definitely a part of justice and stood for justice, stood up for justice, he was, you know, he was the guy that was working out social ministry, you know, from the very beginning. He, along with the other prophets, were calling stuff out that got them all killed. Well, if he's the guy who is recognizing injustice all around him and calling it out, why in the world would he call for a hell like this? You ever think about that? If justice is what we want, and I believe God is just, and I believe justice is meted out in myriad ways that half the time we don't even know it's happening in our own lives uh, in real time, but, but think about it. We know in our own criminal justice system, which we think is somewhat fair, uh, that if you steal something, uh, like if you steal a pen from Crosswalk Community Church, which it's our gift to you. So take as many as you like. So you don't have to feel like you're stealing anymore. It's actually advertising. Please take them and distribute them. So anyway, if, if you're stealing a candy bar from 7-Eleven, or if you're stealing a car uh, from somebody's driveway, there's a different sentence for that. If you commit a white-collar crime and steal millions of dollars from people's retirement funds, well, that's not penalized at all in our system, but, but it should be. So we know that there are different levels of crimes and different levels of punishment with that, but it, it sure seems like this hell that we're talking about doesn't work like that, really, for anything. Because what we're seeing here is if you commit a temporal crime in a finite world, your punishment is infinite. And I don't know if any of us are comfortable with that, really. We may be comfortable with it for somebody else, but not ourselves. We may be the first to cry out, this is not just. So there are problems with this whole concept. But I digress, because the real point Jesus is making is simply, choose to live in the way of shalom. Because apart from shalom, the further you, you veer off of shalom, the more you're going to experience the things that are the opposite of shalom, which are living death. They not only hurt you, but they hurt other people. Things that we know to avoid, greed, selfish things, ego-centered things, all that stuff messes with us and messes with the world that we live in. So he talks about that, and then he ends. And by the way, it might seem like some of these statements are disjointed. That's because they are disjointed. The way Mark was brought about was it was a collection of sayings that they gathered together in community, and they did their best to sort of piece it together. And sometimes they just had these hanging, floating phrases that they wanted to include because they knew that Jesus said it, but they didn't really have a good context, context to fit it in. So they would kind of bundle them together, and that's what you have here. So you got Jesus dealing with this subject about who gets to be a pastor or who gets to do ministry stuff, followed by this 
hell thing about live your life right. And then this other final phrase about, you know, seasoning and stuff. And this is where I wish I would have uh, actually put in the NLT because instead of the word preservatives, um, the word salt is put in there. And that's an important uh, distinction. I've, I did a whole series on salt a few years ago. I know you all remember it well. Uh, in this particular series, we talked about how salt being an element doesn't lose anything. It cannot lose anything. Salt is salt forevermore. But what can cause salt to be less salty is dilution. And in another teaching that Jesus gave, he talked about salt losing its saltiness. And the way it lost its saltiness was probably it got mixed with some gypsum of its day, which looks a lot like salt from the distance. Uh, do you know what gypsum is used for? Sheetrock. Yeah, that's a primary ingredient in sheetrock. How many of you ever tasted a good piece of sheetrock? Just needs a lot of butter. But anyway, if you have enough sheetrock material, gypsum, in with the salt, over time, you can't taste the salt anymore. And so it raises a question for us. If Jesus is wanting us to recognize that God is very pervasive and everywhere doing things, the Spirit is always at work, and we're invited to get out of our puny ways of thinking and think much more expansively into what this inclusive way uh, that God is really doing. And Jesus was all for that. The disciples were all for that. It caused them major problems, largely got them kicked out of the Jewish tribe altogether by the end of the first century. And now we have Jesus saying, uh, at the end, don't lose your saltiness. Don't let your faith, don't let your commitment to shalom, the way that I'm teaching you, don't let it be diluted. Because if you let it happen too much, you're going to lose the taste completely. And so then my question for us is, how do we do that? How, how do we allow other things to come in and dissuade us from shalom? What other factors are there? I don't know what they are for you. But my guess is, on a regular basis, we have an idea or two uh, what those things might be. I think the Spirit nudges us on those things, holds us accountable, and whispers in our ear, hey, uh, that's gypsum. Uh, you can handle a little bit, but too much is going it's, it's to kill you. Uh, come on back. And I think that invitation is always with grace and never with a threat of eternal fire. I don't think that is congruent with the Jesus who claimed to be incarnate with the very presence of God. Okay, well, that's pretty much all I've got uh, on that. Um, I don't know uh, what's messed with you today. Uh, if you were not wearing masks, I would ask for a little feedback and we could have some more conversation, but very difficult uh, with masks on. First service, we could do that super easy, but it's tough uh, in here. So I'm going to ask just that we pray and then uh, we'll close together with the Lord's Prayer. All right. So God, I'm asking you, as I did before, uh, to help us um, settle down once again. I'm praying that your spirit is way ahead of my request that you're nudging us. And I'm wondering if we can identify how you are nudging us this morning. Was it who gets to be in the club? Was it what is this hell thing about? Was it am I losing my saltiness? Was it any of that? Was it all of it? 
How are you speaking to us, God? What are you, what are you bubbling up in us? I believe in your nudging, there is also an invitation. So Spirit of God, what are you inviting us into, toward? What reflection of shalom do you want us to more incorporate into our lives? God, I believe your spirit is always inviting us into deeper relationship with you. So God, what does that help, help nudge us to first identify, is that what we want? If not, why? But if yes, then can we, can we re-up our commitment today? We want to be your people that look a lot like Jesus. God, all of this is an exercise. All of this is a process. We're all learning and growing. We're going to laugh at ourselves someday at some of our silly thoughts, but I hope, God, that as time rolls on in our own lives and in time in general, that we'll be seen as trying to be faithful and doing the best we can to understand complex things that are sometimes very complex within ourselves, and yet you call us forward. And you give us a model to follow and the prayer that you taught the disciples to pray. And so we repeat it as a reminder to ourselves now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.